Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Way back in April, April 27th to be exact, I had Doriel Abrahams, Head of Risk for Forder US, on the podcast. We geeked out, as we often do, about optimizing e-commerce fraud in 2023. So we talked about why he doesn't think that negative lists are effective anymore and how, when used strategically, 3D Secure can increase sales while decreasing fraud in both the U.S. and other countries around the world, although strategies should be different, right, because of PSD2 in Europe and the way that U.S. consumers and U.S. issuers interact with 3D Secure, they should be separate. I shouldn't be surprised by this. But we ran out of time and there were more topics that I really wanted to ask him about. And I also had a feeling that a few of you would have questions that you'd want to ask Doriel. So I invited him to come back. Today is that day. This episode is a bit longer than I usually try to keep it, try to keep it under an hour. But I think you'll be grateful that we didn't cut anything out. One of, I say this all the time, but one of the biggest reasons why I created Fraudology and want to keep putting time and effort and love and passion into this podcast, and I hope it's also another reason why you really enjoy listening, is that everyone has their own unique perspective on fraud prevention, whether it's from banking or e-commerce or government or all those different pieces, the specific companies you worked in, the verticals, etc. And in Doriel's case, he's diving into fraud data on behalf of dozens of the world's biggest online brands. He and his team are essentially an extension of fraud analytics for those very large brands. And so that's why I really enjoy picking his brain, not just on the podcast, but off whenever I'm starting to hear about similar issues impacting several different merchants, like the Master Manipulator event that happened last year around the holiday season. Real was one of the first people I contacted because while I could have start to see patterns anecdotally, he and his team are diving into the data. So while he never shares with me specifics on what company's seeing this or that or anything like that, he can kind of be that gut check, that data, the analytical gut check for what I'm hearing. Or he can say, you just happened to hear from the three companies that must be the only ones having this problem because we're not seeing it. And based on the companies that I know he works with, there some are publicly known, some aren't. I trust that. So that's why I really wanted to have him back on the podcast to get to share some of that perspective. And I just love learning from him. And we do often lose track of time, which is why this is a little bit longer than we planned. But I also wanted to make sure that we got to every question that you submitted. So some of the questions that you asked and that Doriel and I to some extent will answer today will include the biggest specific changes that we've seen over the last few years in e-commerce fraud. Yeah, I've talked about this from my own perspective several times in different ways on the podcast, but I always enjoy hearing it from other people too, because again, different perspectives. And I actually really appreciated the way that he broke it down. It was 
similar but different to how I've been looking at things. And it's already actually changed how I've answered a client's question over the last couple of days. Someone asked what was one of the craziest fraud mysteries his team needed to figure out on behalf of one of their clients. That story is crazy and a really good example of how a lot of times things aren't what they seem, right? So I think at this stage in the game of online fraud, we can almost always guess what someone's intentions are, right? Like, okay, this is their end game. This is their motivation. When we can't, that's where we get stumped. And that's often when I'm reached out to. And in this case, they had to figure it out. And it was quite interesting. And I think whether you are in that specific vertical that impacted or not, you'll learn some things. Then there's been this pretty large debate among one of the merchant groups that I'm a part of, one of the merchant kind of group texts that I'm a part of. And that is pre-auth versus post-auth for online fraud prevention. Which one is better? And there are pros and cons to each, but my own answer has changed over the years. And it was actually interesting to hear that his has too. And then why that is. And I think that if you've been struggling with this or if you have ever wanted to just hear someone else's perspective, I highly recommend listening to that part. Um, and then there were some questions specific to 3D Secure and how we talked about it in his April episode. There were honestly a few merchants who followed their provider's advice, which sounded kind of similar to what Doriel was saying. So they were challenging him and saying, hey, I was told that too, but this is what happened. This is a downside. And gave him a chance to be a little more specific and really talking about how 3D Secure, like a lot of other tools, when it's used correctly, it can be really effective. When it's used incorrectly, it can actually be worse than if you aren't using it at all. I was really glad that he was able to, or that you guys asked those questions and that he felt comfortable giving answers. And I think it'll really help, especially if you've been on the fence about this, either for use to be in compliance with PSD2 or just to try to continually optimize approval rates, decrease chargebacks, et cetera, et cetera. Or if one of your providers says, hey, you need to use 3D Secure and use it this way, you can call BS based on some of the specifics that we lay out. And then there were also a couple questions that you guys know. I try hard not to ever have this podcast be too pitchy or vendor specific. However, because Porter has been the sponsor of Q2 2023, I've received a few questions from listeners specific to Forder that I wanted to give Doriel a chance to answer. One was if Forder has changed in the last couple of years or if they have learned some things in the industry, as well as the most common listener question, and I understand why, what makes Forder unique or different than my current provider? Aren't they all the same? And there were variations of that question, but that's kind of the bottom line. It's a very fair question to ask. And I understand why it's being asked. And I can say from my perspective that I base a lot of my own opinions and suggestions and also the companies that, you know, are able to be sponsors on the podcast on user feedback. I will say that while a lot of fraud solutions do sound the same, the user feedback is not the same at all. So that's what I'll say on that. But he, I thought he gave a good answer. And Doriel isn't in sales, right? He's a fraud fighter just like the rest of us. Yes, Forder pays his paycheck. But he chooses to keep doing that. It's not because he has not had a lot of other offers, even for higher compensation, but there's reasons he chooses that. Okay, before diving into this episode, there's two other things I just wanted to note. Doriel and I will mention towards the end about the Impact Conference coming up on October 11th. It is in New York City. 
While Forder is the main sponsor for that, this is open to everyone. So this isn't just a typical user conference. This is really an opportunity for everyone to learn from each other. And I think I mentioned it on one of the ads too, but if you're curious and you're like, hmm, how much of a commercial is it going to be or anything like that? If you go to forder.com forward slash impact, I-M-P-A-C-T, and go to the agenda page, you can actually see all of the full sessions recorded from last year. There's some really great sessions from Adidas, from Snipes. I'm trying to remember other people off the top of my head. I didn't write them down, but several really good companies that I think you'll appreciate. And I'll give you a good opportunity, not just to have an idea of what to expect at this year's Impact Conference, but also they're talking about some really good topics. So it's kind of like free training on that page. Speaking of free training, Throughout this last quarter, I've been talking about this really cool website that Forder created for fraudologists, and that is at Forder.com forward slash fraudology. I know many of you have gotten your Fraud Fighter t-shirt by signing up at that website. Also, at least, I think at least five or six, I think there's probably more, have actually won a copy of the Practical Fraud Prevention book by O'Reilly Publishing. And now Forder at that website is offering registration for a free training session. And they're calling it a micro training, which I think is really great. So it's not, it's a micro course and it's titled Measure What Matters Most. And that course is being taught by the co-authors of the book, Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing. And those are two of my favorite humans, Galit Saporta and Shoshana Marini. In fact, Shoshana Marini is going to be my guest on next week's episodes to really deep dive into the Fraudology Benchmarking Survey and the data that has come out of that. And we're going to tell you when you get to see your copy, you get to receive your copy. We know that this has taken us longer than we hoped, but I really believe it will be worth it. So make sure that you take advantage of those opportunities. It's important to Forder to support the industry. And I know why so many of us in fraud prevention are skeptical of that, but I've really enjoyed working with Forder on this partnership, on the sponsorship this last quarter. It's really clear to me that their first goal is really to support the industry. And so I hope that you'll get to attend the Impact Conference in October and that you'll also sign up for the free micro course by Galit Saporta and Shoshana Marini. You will not be disappointed. And obviously we all want to know how to measure things that are the most right, metrics and KPIs and all of that. So they're two of the best people to learn from. Speaking of at least one other great person to learn from. I'm going to let you listen in on my conversation with Doriel Abrahams, the head of risk at Forder US. Well, I'm so happy to have you back. Our last conversation really flew by quickly. And you know, I realized that there were questions I had that didn't get to yet. And I also had a feeling that some listeners would have a few questions for you. And even since then, we've did a, you know, an anonymous demo for a couple dozen enterprise merchants who also had questions. So kind of just compiled all of them and I'm going to fire away at you. But thanks again for coming back to Fraudology. Of course, Carissa. Happy to be here. I'm happy you invited me again after I was talking about the brain shawarma last time. So that's really (laughs) great that I'm here again. Yeah. How cutting brains is like cutting shawarma. It made me laugh. But yeah. And I mean, and because you are a true fraud fighter, no matter 
like where someone works, it's like you can tell within five minutes. And I said that on the last call. We think it took about five minutes before we were already making inappropriate jokes. And the first time we met and making lots of fraud analogies and deep dive. And that's one of the reasons why I created the podcast is just to nerd out with fellow fraud nerds or fraudologists. So I, yeah. And like I said, there were still some questions we wanted to I was just going to say, pick your brain, but now we have already talked about cunning brains. And <laughs> we, we can put the brain in a pita with tahini or something like that. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I'll pick your brain and put it. Yeah. So, but first, because you were on last time, one of the things that I want I want to try to be better at, because I've gotten this for a few listeners, is wanting to ask, you know, a couple personal questions too. And I was going to do it at the end of last episode, decided to start off today, kind of rapid fire style. The first one is, What's your favorite book to recommend? It doesn't have to be fraud specific. When somebody asks what's a good book you read or often nonfiction or whatever else, what do you like to recommend? So, I mean, I'm, I think I'll go with fiction. I think my favorite book ever, I read it so many years ago, I'm kind of after it again, is Paul Oster's Music of Chan. It's such a great, short, kind of modern American tale about the arbitrary thing that's called life and how things can just happen with a roll of a dice, essentially, and change the course of everything and anything to the point of what craziness has such a great way with words. And I just adore this book uh, to this day. It's such a really It's called The Music of Chance. Correct. Yes, I, it is a direct <laughs> translation from Hebrew, but I think that's the, that's the actual right. And then when you're not fighting fraud, what do you, or if that gives you any spare time, what do you like to do in your spare time? I wouldn't like to say that I play guitar, but the truth is I try to play guitar. I've been playing kind of chords, campfire guitar for almost far back as I can remember myself. And I always enjoy that. But in the past couple of years, specifically during COVID, I decided that I want to learn how to play jazz guitar. Guess what? It's a lot more harder than just playing just cowboy chords. So I'm working my way through it slowly but surely. That's, that takes a lot of patience and dedication for sure. I I don't have either one. Well, I mean, I have dedication, but I don't have patience. And also it takes a lot of patience from the people you share a household with. That's also something that I constantly need to be reminded of when I play the same lick again and again and again. There's someone else that's hearing everything. So that's uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, you live in New York, so you're you know used to kind of being confined in smaller spaces. I've been lucky to have two floors, and so while my my husband also practices guitar, usually I can't I can't hear it very well. So I'm, I'm safe there. I'm happy for you. And then, what's the best career advice you've ever received? Oh, that's interesting. I think it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's an advice, but it's something that kind of my wife and I kind of picked up on together. We both, as we talked about last time, I started kind of with a different type of path and my wife as well started like she thought she'd be a psychologist. And then sometime around whatever, a couple of, too many years ago, we wanted to do a career change. Then we kind of figured that the only thing you need to do to start working at a certain job is to pack the job interview. And when you kind of set your mind to it, it's really, I don't want to say easier, but it takes a lot of pressure off. Because if someone has designed a job interview process, it means that if you pass that, you get to work at that specific job. And all you need to do is pass the interview. So you need to learn enough just that, then you can do whatever it is you want. So my wife, which I love very much, she's now carrying our firstborn. Hopefully everything will be good and we parents together. She, in the last some 10 years, transitioned from studying psychology to be a software developer. Just wow. because all she wanted to do was pass the job interview. Right. You start with algorithms, you start with kind of learning how to code, 
then everything else kind of follows suit. And I think same way how I found myself in fraud, right? Like didn't know anything. Porter has designed a job interview process to see if someone is adequate to do the job and I was able to pass it. And that's all there is to think about it. So all of the listeners out there, there's something you need to do. Try to think of how you, you know, how you get a job doing that. And that's basically all you need. Because then from then onwards, it's yours. I don't know if you want to be an astronaut, maybe that's kind of a different type of training. And, but right. In tech, I think that is pretty much all it takes. Just get a job. And to get a job, to pass the interview. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I There's always outliers, right? And I think of some people I know who are really good at interviewing, but aren't good at doing the job. But I think that what I hear from you isn't necessarily saying to bullshit your way through the interview. Oh. It's more like, no, no it's more like it's you just look at it one step at a time rather than getting overwhelmed by the whole thing. And that I agree with because often I'm like, I'd love to be a whatever. If they think you are, then you probably are. And you're not psyching yourself out, right? And you're just taking it one step at a time. That's how I interpret that. That is absolutely. I think I can maybe rephrase it as kind of the fake it to make it is something I really believe in. But in order to be really good at faking something, you actually need to learn how to do it. And then if you know how to do it, then you know how to do it. And it's not faking. Like the best form of faking something is actually doing it and then it's not fake and there you go. More yeah, or less. In your mind, you have to tell yourself you're faking it because you yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Imposter should solve. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it makes perfect sense. I just felt like I had to qualify that because I'm like, I can think of a few people I know that I, I mean, I only talk to them after they get the job and I'm scratching my head like, you must interview really well because you don't seem to know this job. No, so look, <laughs> if you're going to get the job and then you're going to sit in your ass and do nothing, that doesn't, that's not a good career. But what I was saying is that like, yes. if you if you have a target, think of what are the steps you need to yes, to achieve it. 100%. Kind of piecemeal, and then one bite at a time is much easier than okay. How can I be a director of whatever it is? Yeah. Start by thinking what is the what's like position need to be at before, it, and then what does it take to get there? And when you break it down, it makes everything a lot less terrifying. And then yes. I'll little passes like I want to be a judge. Okay, you got to start with law school, right? So it's very yes. easy to understand the path is but in our world especially tech data analytics fraud yeah. it's all out there so start with getting a job get a job one thing you need yeah and then you might find what you love about that but not love about another and then go from there right i'm and with you and as someone whose child just graduated high school last year we've had very similar conversations in my house too is hey i understand what you want to be in 10 years but what's the first step to do that and, and that's mm-hmm. where she's at now is in that first step, you know, and going from there. And for those of us in fraud who kind of came about it by accident, we also want to leave a little bit up for chance because you don't know what you don't know, right? So you don't know what exists. That, that ties back to my favorite book, it right? Totally does. Everything is random. Not everything, but a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mix of free and hard work, right? Isn't that the mm-hmm. quote? Luck is a combination of hard work and, and opportunity. Opportunity. Yep. Yep. All right. Yep. When opportunity and hard work. Yep. I wholeheartedly believe in that. Just make sure you're ready when the time comes. We don't yeah. know when that is. So be ready all and the time. You don't always know what that is, right? Yeah. That's yeah, for yeah. sure. So after diving into that, let's dive into even a more fun topic for us, which it's whenever we get on the phone. I know it's going to be a while because we just love to geek out so much and we are aligned in so many ways. But I always learn so much from you. And hopefully once in a while you learn something from me. All the time. You're too kind. But what... So just kind of diving in, what are the biggest changes in fraud that you've seen over the years? And that's a broad question, but it's something that I think my listeners have heard me talk about quite a bit. 
we've seen some really big leaps in the last three or four years, but you've been in you know the fraud industry for over seven years. You get to work with some of the biggest brands in the world in all different verticals and areas. So you get to see all kinds of things. But if you were just, has it changed you know, in the last few years and how, or what are some of those big changes? How do you answer that question? That's a really interesting question to think about. And kind of the first thing that jumped off the mind is, I think, again, ties back to our conversation last time, which I enjoyed very much. Yeah. And we spoke about evolution, like mm-hmm. what stems the change, right? The turtles in the Galapagos Island are different, not because they each have their own individual path, right? They're different because they have different conditions of, mm-hmm. of growing or like different habitats. So when you think about it, fraud has changed as much as industry itself of e-commerce mm. and as the fraud prevention vendors and, text- and tactics. I would kind of break it down to these two. So on one hand, there's the what we like to call the new gen fraud prevention that's not reliant on rules, that talks about automation, try to figure out identity stuff, behavioral analytics, everything we're saying. Mm-hmm. And that incentivizes or reinforced fraudsters to think of different ways on how to work. Right. So if before the fraudster would have tried to kind of separate themselves from anyone else, would come with a new device with a never seen before IP, with a made up phone that they just generated and a new identity. Now fraudsters understand, okay, there are fraud prevention tools, vendors, technologies that are trying to connect me to different people and borrow that reputation. Mm-hmm. So I'd much be better off hacking into someone else's account. Right. Or just using even a random email I found online, but that mm-hmm. email holds some sort of a reputation. Or we've seen people as sophisticated as logging into someone's account and going away for three months, then coming back to the same account, making a transaction. But now their IP is already associated with that account. Yeah. So we're seeing these things. So that's one part of the change. So processors are adapting to the new structure. But the other thing I think is something that's completely unrelated. There are geopolitics or whatever stuff that are happening in the world that just changed the way fraud is. If I'm being honest for it, some yeah, three years no, ago, I think you're three right. years ago, COVID changed e-commerce, flipped it upside down almost. Everyone's behavior has changed. Of course, it's going to impact fraudsters' behavior because now it's okay to have like multiple IPs because you're traveling around because you don't have to be in an office. It's okay to have VPN all the time yes, turn on yes. because we're all further away. People have moved from the cities to all areas. People moved back. People did all sorts of different things with their devices. It makes sense that you get on a work call on your personal iPhone while making a transaction on Amazon on your work computer. Like everything got mixed and that obviously changed fraudulent behavior. And then at the same time, there are regulatory changes that are happening. Like 3DS in Europe. Mm. Like how's mm-hmm. that impacting fraud behavior and the way you can kind of get around certain aspects of friction or or I'm thinking of like new industries. When I first started fighting fraudsters in Forder, we all were super anxious about cryptocurrency, right? Oh, kind yeah. of, I don't want to say mm-hmm. it wasn't the entirely beginning of crypto, but the notion of trading crypto with credit card became a real thing. And and that meant that people are you know, trying to do different things like social engineering to make sure that you are sending the real cardholders picture with a selfie with a something. So, yeah. well, all sorts of different fraud patterns that just are like a natural evolvement as like reaction to real life effects. And I think this is one of the things that is, I'm getting a lot of these, like, what are interesting fraud trends you're seeing? Fraud has changed. What, what do we think we can do? Oh the reality is it's an arms race, right? Fraudsters are doing something. We're stopping that. So they'll crack up a window and they'll probably go on in there because that's how things are. 
they're right. smart. I hope we're smarter, but I don't know. And and this is like an ever evolving kind of thing. So how does fraud change? I and mean, how would it not? It always changes. That's that's the nature right. of fraud. Think about it. Well, yeah, and I you bring up some good points, right? I feel like both of those things feed they inform each other and they make each side harder, right? So the fact that fraudsters have tried to adapt to fraud prevention technology makes it challenging. Now, I mean, I feel like they, like the majority of fraudsters think that they're really trying to adapt to the fraud technology that was popular five or six years ago. I haven't seen them adapt as much to the newer stuff now that the companies that are continually innovating. The problem is, is that a lot of technology companies have have chosen not to innovate. So there's fraudsters love thresholds, right? They love rules. They love being able to know where's that line. Oh, such a great example. Going to review under this or over this or that. You know, whatever you read postings from them, whether it's on Telegram or Discord or dark web forums, etc., they're constantly saying like, as long as you you purchase less than this and less than this many items and this much money and this is your and, bre- and break it down for like during a month. Exactly and right. it. Yeah, they know exactly you know what, what those rules are, right? Because they're not changing all the time. And I do have actually another cool example that you think about. I think we kind of experienced that in last holiday season. Yes, we address did. manipulation, low tech yeah. manipulation is exactly the case where this is a fantastic mm-hmm. example of how fraudsters would sometimes rather to take a step back complexity or in sophistication in order to pass so all these great tools yeah. that offers like behavioral linking the identity stuff and then all you got to do is you scribble a bunch of random random characters at the address and then no one knows that it's you that is a great example of how fraudsters can adapt backward in terms of like technology savviness or whatever it is and so this is right, because like the- a perfect example of how anything can happen even with the yeah. new tools yeah well, right, because what they were doing is they were in, I think we talked a bit about it on our last conversation, and anyone that listened to the episodes of Shoshana and I talking about the master manipulators in November heard it too, where they're taking advantage of the fact that the address that they may want to receive an item could be on someone's native list, right? It could be in a consortium. But if they add another letter to the address or if they move it around or that or the other, it's almost like that consortium or that fraud system is seeing that as a whole new record. And a whole new address. So they're not tying them together. Similarly, I just was having a call with a newer client of mine the other day who said that one of their biggest challenges is that their website is starting to add the longer zip code for their USA transaction Mm -hmm. and that their fraud system, but they're only doing it on shipping. So their fraud system looks at that and there's a short, even if the first five numbers of the zip code are the same between the billing address and the shipping address. Like the shipping address has an extra four or five numbers afterward, their fraud system is coding that as red alert, red alert, the billing and shipping don't match. Um, or in fact, they don't match. Right. That's, yeah. That's the other side of the equation of like, not like legitimate people are being turned down for. Yes. And that's what I was just going to say. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the other piece is then, yeah. So you've got fraudsters trying to like blend in and, and they love to kind of understand those things. But then, as you said, you have consumers who are, we're now moving around. We're using a V, if you're working remote, you're using a VPN to log into your company system or you're using a VPN because you heard about it on a podcast or other technology stuff because it equals safety and security. Or you're using different IPs because you're moving around or whatever that is. Those are things that are that good people do, but makes them look very risky. So I, unfortunately, when you have fraudsters trying to look like the legitimate people and you have legitimate people 
accidentally looking like what fraud has looked like in the past. Now you have a really challenging accuracy problem. No, overfitting on one side and underfitting on the other. And I know because I know a lot of what you do in your role and I know the effect I've seen the effects of it talking to so many of your customers that you guys have all had to think about this on your side quite a bit. You've seen it in real time where, okay, it was much easier to be able to identify fraud and good customers even four or five years ago. How do we keep trying to move the ball and ch- you know, when, because these things are outside of our control, right? It's outside of our control how quickly fraudsters adapt, and it's outside of our control, how quickly the consumers and and technology changes and stuff. So how do we keep up with that? And I mean, I know that's a very challenging thing to answer, but what, what's been your approach with that? I think the main thing, and we kind of touched on it on the last episode, but I think the main thing is to really not, we try not to marry ourselves to any specific data point. I think this is extremely important sense of address. So we might say in a certain context, we don't care what the address is because what matters is the person who's making the transaction. And again, the not caring about address consideration helps us with both of those incidents. Because if we were to link only on the address in the address manipulation conversation, we would have completely missed out on their fraud. But also on the legitimate scenario, if we were to only connect with the address, then shipping and, and billing do not match. So if you're... Hmm. Disregarding the address and trying to validate or to understand what the behavior suggests. So if you were to say, well, these are all different addresses on the surface because they're manipulated in whatever way, but it's all from the same or a very similar device that shows the same or uniquely similar behavioral feature. Clearly, it's the same person. I don't care if it's a 300 different addresses. I think that whole thing is one big fraud ring. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, I would see, okay, so the binning and shipping don't match, but it's Carissa's device. And I know Carissa for 10 years now, she's been shopping at whatever store. We're using that device. Who cares? Maybe she's sending it to a friend. Maybe she's sending a night at Seattle. It happens sometimes, right? So maybe she's sending something there. Why would I care what's happening with anything once I establish that I know the person that, that makes this? You know, don't even have to know them. Need to understand who they look like hmm. mostly in a sense. Yeah. yeah and, I think yeah, behavior, right, is so much more important than specific data points. And that could correct. Be and I think the behavior absolutely. And that the behavior I think where this is becoming a little bit tricky, which is fine. We love tricky. Behavior is not always like how you move your mouse or you know, how long you stand on the page or what your right hand or left hand. I mean these are all important things and if you can see them in the deduction group. But when you talk about behavior, it's a lot of different things. And yeah, along the lines of what we spoke last time, there are so many things that as online users, we expose to the world that we don't even know that we do. And I'm not even talking about like specific identifiers, like an IP or like geolocation, like device, right? I'm using an ad block of a certain company that is Mm -hmm. a certain version because I updated it or not. That's something that I use in combination with my other plugins on my browser. That's me. There's no right. other person in the world that has the same exact combination of plugins. I, knowing what plugins I use, I can assure you, there's no way there's a single <laughs> person in the world that has all you. plugins. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, the, one, yeah, of, one of them that. is like random. It's like the Israeli zip code generator. Because in Israel, like the zip code is much longer than the five yes. zip code. No one remembers it. I have a plugin. I put in an Israeli address. I have the zip code. That's it. I don't need to ever remember anything. So that's like, it, it, it is something important about me. I don't live in Israel for four years now. I still have this plugin because I use it sometimes. And that's just such a strong tell that this is mm-hmm. me who's using this device. You know what I mean? And um, that's more reliable than 
then this is the address that we have on file for Dwell Abrahams because that that changes all the time, especially in the last few years, right? Like I think Correct. we've all moved around a lot. Or, you know, yep. this is the exact phone number or this is the exact person to door. It's that combination of the characteristics of your device, as well as the history of what your patterns are with all other orders within your network. You're looking higher add- other than specifics because you're absolutely right. When we're looking at specifics, that's when it makes it very tricky to ident- to be able to say that's fraud, that's not fraud. And we're seeing more and more gaps and more and more big like misses in accuracy because of that because we're trying to get to the just the very specific right the very if they didn't don't answer it or enter in their address the exact same way they did last time then that's not them but if you're looking sure. at all these combinations and things and it's it gives you and if you and then then if you think about like all of the ways in which fraud has evolved like my tender fraud yeah like that's all a result of that i cannot be that naive saying oh Orders and they were really good, of course, but fraudsters try their best and they'll take another shot at it and another shot at it and another shot at it until they get something right. Mm-hmm. Then we would need to adapt as well. And that is the challenge. And from a philosophic point of view, that's also the beauty of it, right? It's not just the one and that. Right. We're always yeah, on our phones here. Yes. Yeah. And if we were, right, it would be boring for those of us mm-hmm. that love this role. I mean, the grant exactly. is sometimes boring, it's nice, but. And I think the key is, though, that the adapting, right? Like if you decide, oh, you know, we figured out how to fight fraud two years ago or we, hey, we're top of the mountain now. We're fighting fraud really well now. We're just going to stop with R&D and we're just going to keep using the same thing over and over again for the next five years. The fraudsters are going to be like, sweet, if you stay there, we can catch up and surpass you. But if you keep moving at the same speed or a similar speed as us, then that makes the arms race harder to, to catch up to. Exactly. So moving from like broad to kind of specific, there's been some heated debates in the one of the frog groups of merchants that I support. And that is this idea of, is it better to have a frog system that's looking at pre-authorization or post-authorization? So the point being pre-authorization being before you find out if the credit card works or not, before you find out what the bank says, is this a valid credit card? Is there money in the account, et cetera, versus post-auth is, Okay, we're going to ask the bank what they think first. We're only going to look at the orders that once the bank says, yes, they're okay. And then we're going to decide on fraud. There's a lot of different debates out there. And I know that, at least for me, my opinion has actually changed over the last few years because of how I have seen fraud change. But I'm curious where you stand on this and what those pros and cons are of of the fraud strategies. That's really interesting. I think I might disappoint you in how cutting my answer would be here. At the end of the day, when you're trying to think of the optimal place to have your fraud check, you want to understand what are the capabilities you would have at each point and what are the things that you can do and what are the things that would be impacted by your choice. And I'll spill the beans right now and say that I'm a real supporter of pre-authorization. Reasons are multiple. A, when you're pre-authorization, you get to stop fraud before it hits the bank. Now, Issuing banks, it's not that they're not okay with fraud. I mean, they, they're not liable for it. Usually it's merchants, right? So mm-hmm. that's what happens. But where it does get them is that merchants are being dinged for fraud rates that they have. Even if they ended up rejecting the order 
for fraud. So meaning something was authorized and then null or voided. It depends on which processor you're using. Or even for high no auth rates. So if the bank is calling a lot of your traffic unauthorizable due to fraud, you will eventually incur higher processing fees because they might deem you more fraudulent merchant because you have more traffic. And actually, the better your auth rates are, the better and better they'll get because you'd be put in safer and safer risk buckets with the processor or issuing bank themselves. So at the end of the day, we have a chance. Basically, what they're telling me is that us fraud fighters, fraud community, merchant, whatever fraud managers, have a chance of cleaning the traffic before it's being sent to the processor. And there's a debate Mm -hmm. about whether it's better or worse to do that. I mean, it's, I think it's a no-brainer. And Mm. on top of that, when free off, I mean, think about it. You're just, you're going to up your authorization rate, even artificially. By just, you know, making your denominator smaller, right? You're making yeah. the tie smaller and obviously mm. you're blocking a lot of bad traffic. So the author is going to be better. But then other options you would have with that is you get to potentially, we spoke about 3DS last night. You get mm. to send stuff to 3DS. You can't send anything to 3DS after authorization has already happened. Mm. It's already done. And then the one last thing that I can say that it's something that Porter has made a wealthy amount of investment in, and I am a true believer of that, is that we today have multiple relationships with issuing banks. Those relationships and our like directly integrated relationship allows us essentially to update issuing bank of a transaction that's about to come in. So we're working with merchant, whatever aid, call them Acme, and we're working with issuer one, let's call it bank. And we can tell the bank, hey bank, you're about to get an Acme transaction. We've seen that transaction. We believe it's good. That's why we're sending it over to you. now. We know that you have your own set of rules for which you would reject the transaction. Mm-hmm. Insufficient funds, malformed card, expired card. Sure, I cannot put money in anyone's bank. If that's the reason you're going to reject that order, go ahead. But if you're going to reject or not authorize a certain payment just because of some internal fraud rules or fraud consideration that you have, have no fear. This transaction has a further stamp. We've seen that transaction. We trust this person. We know them, whatever it is. And then the bank can take that information. I can't say they take it for gospel because they might still want to reject right. it. They might not. But this is an additional data point that they have on the transaction that would help them trust it. And again, you kind of ask me whether it's good to be pre author off and I'm going into a shameless plug about Forder here, but I do think it's important because with that tool alone, we're able to sometimes reduce the fraud no off by almost 50%. So mm. you get to earn, now of course, yeah, the fraud no off out of the entire no off is sometimes 10 to 15 to 20% of the entire topic. But if we can cut it in half, it's money on the table that you can only achieve by going free off. So right. even without it, I would recommend go pre-auth, but with this in mind, no brainer, no question. Absolutely. 100%. Well, so devil's advocate, I mean, I'm with you on this, like I said, especially. So I think I used to be, it used to not matter as much, I don't think. Post-auth, pre-auth, it didn't matter as much because there wasn't as much purchasing bots. There wasn't as many high demand, low inventory or limited inventory items. Like event ticketing was like the only one, right? And now it's shoes and all kinds of things. Like there's all these drops on Instagram and all that stuff, right? So the problem is if you're doing post-auth, you're reserving that inventory until you, know, you have to put it back and it's manual, et cetera. And other things, I know that 
one of the things I hear often from from merchants, honestly, for their reason, their biggest reason for wanting to go post-op is not wanting to pay their fraud provider for the for the decision before knowing what the bank says. If your fraud provider setup is, if you're getting specific pennies usually, you know, per transaction, you're paying that fraud provider so much more than if you limit it down. My counter argument to that is we've seen what happens when we rely on the bank's information. Banks are going to authorize a lot of transactions that aren't fraud, right? Or they are fraud. I mean, they're going to authorize those fraudulent orders. So you can't trust the bank as much as you can trust a fraud solution, as well as uh, oftentimes they'll say we want to be able to see all of those attempts because maybe it's an issue where it's a customer that we want, but maybe they just don't have funds in their account right now. So we want to, you know, send them marketing emails, whatever. But the more sophisticated things get with bot traffic, for example, if you don't know that that's, if you're not looking at anything about the transaction until after the bank's gotten to look at it, and then you're looking at things, well, now bots look just like everyone else, right? Like every, you're looking at all those things, as well as you're absolutely right. The issuers only have so much information to decide not just on a transaction level, but a merchant level. Is that merchant good? And if they see that you they're having to decline 50% of the or 30% of the transactions on that merchant ID, they're going to say, man, they've got a high fraud rate. We're going to decline that. We're going to decline more because we think. Or, or they're just going to add processing fees. I mean, yes, it's yes. whether you want to pay your fraud vendor or you want to pay your processor. When I'm, I'm limited from commenting because obviously I have a side <laughs> door. Right, yeah. But, but I can say it's like, I mean, I, that's a good from point, my perspective, unfortunately, when fraud and payments are separate or there isn't a payments department at all, most fraud yeah, managers don't sure. realize that they're paying sometimes up to 10 cents per authorization request sometimes. from their bank. And you know what? And you're there's paying another, your fraud provider a lot less. Yeah. There's another huge issue, which is card testing. And it's mm-hmm. sometimes, especially if you think of the very low value merchants. So mm-hmm. I would say like food delivery, when you can just buy a bottle of water. Or mm-hmm. if you're doing like, if you're selling some sort of like a software licensing, well, the first month is like zero dollars. So essentially authorize the card for zero dollar. Right. Or if you're mm-hmm. allowing users to save payments on their account and every time they save a payment, they run a zero dollar off, then any fraudster who gets their hand on a list of 100,000 credit cards and just needs somewhere to authorize them, mm-hmm. they will go on this Ask Me site, open an account and save a card, save a second card have a third card just to see if those cards are even legitimate. As a merchant, you end up incurring, and again, they can do it on the same card. They can do it even at checkout with, again, low value item. Mm-hmm. You can you end up having 100,000 not authorized transactions because these that's a list of 100,000 stolen credit cards. Right. Right? Maybe one or two of them are real. So the fraudster essentially is using you as a sandbox to test their mm-hmm. side. You're paying the high fees for authorization those fees, high no yeah. You're paying the authorization fees. If you were to stop that and before, you're telling them, yeah, not, sure, these cards. And, are and you're helping them, of course. Yeah. And you're helping mm-hmm. the processors. Now, the one thing we did see recently is something I almost afraid to speak about it publicly, but we've seen users who seemed like like they had like a serial order to like the cards they were using, meaning it was clear that they were just generating all possible permutations of what looks like a credit card number and just hit the authorization page again and mm-hmm. again and again. And the scary thing is they got like a few. So yep. you don't even need to steal credit cards today. You can just make up numbers and run them against authorization pages of sites that do post. Uh, and 
well, and even actually, more yeah, so. I, I did a whole episode on that actually a few yeah. months ago. So, yeah, so, where people were starting to say, "Well, I haven't even gotten the new card in the mail yet, and it already has fraud." Yeah, exactly. because there are a so lot. Steals the list or yeah, the algorithm. Happen. The mod ten algorithm is all they need, right? And to know which specific <laughs> algorithm within mod ten each bank uses. And pretty much and, all of that's already out there, right? And so, and you want to know the scary, the really scary the piece? So, I've been there recently, and there are only a few people who have like the technical ability to generate those codes. I got on ChatGPT and I asked it to help me figure out how to make up credit card numbers. Like, I've done it, I yeah. was talking huh. somewhere else about generative AI, so I wanted to find this example, so I did it right before then, or just right. talk about it somewhere else. So he obviously refused it. I am an AI model. I'm here to do good things in the world. I'm not allowed to generate fake credit cards. Fair. Thank you for that. <laughs> can you tell me, can you tell me what a fake credit card number would look like? And then, <laughs> of course, I said, can I get a code to generate fake credit cards? Of course. And then I said, but wait, how would I know if these are fake credit cards or accidentally real ones? Can I get a code that validates whether these are fake credit cards or not? He said, of course. And then, I mean, so it went. You're a reverse engineer, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's like very easy. I mean, I don't think of myself as a typically super smart person. I'm literally, I've done it for like 15 minutes and I already got a list of fake credit cards and a tool that validates if the credit card is fake or not, which means that I was left with a list of very little made up credit, a real looking, word formatted credit card. And now I can take that list and run it against whatever side I want. And I get that. Now, any, I don't want to say any fraud prevention tool because I don't know, but I know some tools that will do it, can validate if like an activity seems to be like scripted or manipulative or the yes. velocity is too risky. And essentially stop that from even happening. So what you're getting as a merchant is A, no fraudster is getting to take advantage of your checkout or authorization process to validate cards. But at the same time, you're not sending a bunch of bullshit fake credit cards to your processor to incur higher fees and higher involvement. So again, yes, yes, you're paying the fraud vendor money for those checks. But I mean, guess what? If you have a fire in your house, you need to use a fire extinguisher and you need to get a new one for the next time you're going to have a fire. Like you don't get to use one hammer to hit all nades. I mean, with hammer and nades, it's not a bad example. Or fire extinguisher is a great example. Yes, if right. you have another fire, you need something else to fight. What like the difference is that this is a very, very, very opportunistic need-based attack. So if any bot operator or car tester tries to hit your side and see that they're getting nothing out of it, they're just right. going to move somewhere else. They're just going to go somewhere else. But so it's point, that easy. If, yeah. Right. If they can use your site and they know that you are calling out to the bank first before yep. doing a fraud check, then your system will tell them, oh, that's an invalid card number or, oh, we got a decline on that. So therefore, you're whatever it is, they will never get them authorized. Yeah. So, and then if you're right. doing a post auth check, yes, those orders might get blocked. You might never get a chargeback for all those 99 cents orders or whatever it is, but the fraudster already got. They already got what they, they wanted. Right. Yeah. Because they, all yeah. they, they didn't really want that 99 cent bottle of water or whatever it was. They didn't care. They just tried to validate the card. Yeah. was to know, is this card valid and can I use it somewhere else for a higher dollar? Well, that's a good point. Good, because um, we covered kind of two things. So we also talked about like a cool fraud that's happening and, and, uh, and the pre-auth. Oh, there true. You go. Yeah. And whenever I have anyone here for ask me anything or just other questions, one of the things that everyone wants to know is, what's your most memorable fraud story? And for you, you probably have a mountain of them because 
again, your team is responsible for identifying fraud for dozens of the biggest companies in the world. So you probably see, and they're usually the first targets, right? They're the biggest, they're the biggest targets of the newest types of fraud. So you, know, you get to see some fun things. And I happen to know just through becoming your friend that you have some really great fraud stories. What's one of the more memorable ones? Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. I think the coolest one I've seen was something that I was, I mean, I'm not that dramatic, but if it was like a Hollywood movie, I would stand up and clap in front of my computer when we found this one. And that I think goes exactly along the lines of everything we spoke of today. Like the sophistication of knowing when to be, when to do something very technical and when to do something so mundane that no one even thinks about it is so great. We are working with a lot of online travel agencies, so I'm okay with sharing the story without it pointing anyone specific. But we had a group of fraudsters, and I'll, no, I'll tell you what they did and not how we caught it, because the how we caught it is like the boring, okay, something is weird, and then we kind of asked after we realized what's actually happening. But we had seen a group of people, and I'm specifically saying group of people because it was not just one very notable person, it was more than methodology. They were buying first-class tickets, Delta Airlines, from MIA, Miami Airport, to SFO. Those tickets at the time ran for something like $2,800, $300, mean, something. That's mm-hmm. an expense. And every single one of them was charged back, right? Mm-hmm. And different people was charging back. Now, you might say, it's pretty easy, pretty cool, but how are they making money out of it? What's in it for them? Mm-hmm. Turns out, when you are buying an airline ticket for an online travel agency, airline has no, like the airline themselves has no idea who paid, how yep. it was paid. All they know is they have your name and the ticket for you. Now mm-hmm. you can call 
the airline and downgrade your ticket to coach. And then there's about $2,500 difference that needs to be refunded somewhere. Now, they don't have the original payment method. So they will just ask you, where should we send the refund to? You can either give them a bank account. You can give them a debit card that they would upload funds on. Sometimes they can offer you like gift cards or a sign. Hmm. So these people found like the most amazing way to essentially print money without wow. anyone having to fly anywhere. They didn't need to do any triangulation thing. They didn't need to find, because usually in online travel agencies, like the fake travel agency, like you pay someone and then they pay someone else and get the ticket. Yep. But this was such, like literally, how did anyone ever even thought of that? Right. They think airlines policies have changed since in terms of mm-hmm. refunds, of course, mm-hmm. to combat Especially that. Since COVID, but also that. Yes, since COVID, of course. But <laughs> right. that was so like, that was really genius. I was, and, and honestly, if you're good at kind of using multiple identities, which they were not great at, but they were pretty solid, like you can... You can do a lot with those types. Like, this is the mindset that really excites me. Like, how you're mixing. It's very similar with, like, online, like, e-commerce retailers that also have brick and mortar store. And think of, like, a fraud mm-hmm. scenario that combines, <laughs> like, the, the omni-channel aspect. Yes. It's really cool. Yeah. It's really cool when you think about it. That's how you can confuse. Yes. And it's the same as you go, you know, you ask something of your dad and then he says yes or no. And then you go to your mom and then, like, you have the ability to whatever and then, like, kind of play dumb it's kind of the same thing but with fraud and like you're taking advantage of the omni-channel aspect so it was not only that it was a mixture of the airline and the travel agency but also the fact that they did the transaction online but then called in and asked yeah. for a refund so like all of that combined it's really 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 interesting and you know when you when you when you're talking to a rep and the discussion is around where the refund is going to get like you're going to get sent to You've already mm-hmm. won. Like it's yes. already like it's already you're already there. Okay, so they'll give you a gift card that you can then sell, or they'll give you a refund to like send you like a visa preloaded card, whatever. But at that point, you already you don't have even have money, to. Right? Yeah, yeah, you don't have to find someone to take over the full airline ticket and change the name with the you know on the manifest and all of those yeah, things. Exactly, just to get a refund you, and the refund and, and you cannot system. refund. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that and, and we see that I all the really time, genius. right? We see a lot of exploiting of different systems, right? Like, you know, I'm going to use this payment method and I'm going to, you know, uh, commit the crime over on this website, but I know that the rules of this payment method, they can't do like all these different things, right? The payment method has more information or whatever it is, like so many different systems being exploited or exploiting, you're making a large dollar order from an online retailer that's shipping to you, but the exploit actually happens at the shipping company. Right. Like you're not, you don't have to touch the, the merchant can have everything locked down. It's that. And so I think, you know, on that if one, you read the fine print, you can get a lot done. Yes. Yes. And it's explaining the processes, right? Like makes me think that either it was someone who had worked at one of the airlines or the online travel agencies who said this or this happens, or it probably more than anything happened on accident once and someone placed an order, they downgraded for whatever reason, or they in then they were told, oh, where do you want the refund? Wait, this happens. And then they either shared it with their friends or they had that thought and yeah. were like, I could do this a whole bunch. It's yeah. fascinating. And yeah, I think all of us in fraud, we can appreciate those things. It's the, they're the ones that make us like face palm and also go, wow, I'm really proud of you, right? At the same time. But at the end of the day, thanks to that, we have a job. So I'm kind of like, it's okay. Like we're even, that's not, not, I don't care too much, but it's like that. 
That's ex- exciting, frustrating, and awe-inspiring all at the same time. Yeah, and it, I think in a way I have more respect for the career criminals, the ones who are committing third-party fraud, than the people committing first-party fraud. But that's a whole other thing. And you touched just really quickly on channel stuff. And that's something that's really fascinating, too. A lot of retailers have seen, you know, and there's so many different exploits on that. That that should be its own topic. In fact, I am thinking of someone who I hope maybe they can get approval to come on as a merchant because they have some really great stories on this. But then there's only so much they can say, right? But I know one exploit and it works using some solution providers over others or some retailers more than others, that kind of thing. It usually depends on who their solution provider is at the end, but the fraudsters don't know that. So they'll just post a list of this will work at these companies. And I look at it and go, oh, well, all of them either use this one or that one. You know, they wouldn't know that where you order two items, right? You order one low dollar item and you order one expensive item, low dollar item, you order it, pick up in store, high dollar item. You uh, have it shipped and some systems only have the ability to look at the risk factor for one shipping address. And so they look at the risk factor for the shipping address to the store and they go, oh, that's at the store. So perfect. And the fraud system doesn't even ingest that second shipping address to do any kind of fraud review at all. Mm-hmm. And so or yeah, if you're Micar, so you ship something yeah. cheaper, then you also add like a hundred thousand dollar gift card or something crazy right. like that. No, okay, it's like the shipping is the billing and it's AVS full match. And of course, right. so not a problem. But there's also a gift card there for like whatever, $20,000. So yes. Yeah. And I think exactly really the, theme is, the theme of this whole conversation is we can no longer have things be exact, right? You can't assume that it's this and it's that, right? There's never going to be, it's never going to be specific, right? So we have to kind of think outside the box and go, what are some other identifiers and factors that we can look at to identify risk, whether it's because we can't just rely on the shipping address. We can't just rely on the billing address to your point earlier. So then switching. So last week or on the last call, I guess it was a month or two ago, time always flies when you're fighting fraud. You talked a little bit about 3DS and strategies. And I think that I got a couple of questions. I've also had some conversations with merchants recently about it. And there was some confusion. So you were talking more about, I believe you were talking more about using 3DS strategically, not just blanket. And I think that there's a misunderstanding that that 3DS is 3DS, right? That every company, whether it's a payment processor or a fraud solution that deploys 3D Secure, that they're deploying it in the same way. So with that in mind, here's two follow-up questions I received. And they're kind of related. So the first scenario is we use the fraud product provided by our payment processor. When we had a high spike in fraud attacks, they suggested that we implement their 3DS solution and bypass a fraud review on any transaction that would qualify for the liability shift because the merchant would not have to pay the chargeback. But a week or two later, we received a call from our warehouse that they had over 700 orders from just one or two days of orders that look suspicious. Even though we wouldn't receive a fraud chargeback for those, we have an exclusive luxury brand and we don't want fraudsters to be reselling our products because it's a brand integrity issue. So even though they're going to get the money back, like they don't want to lose it. Is there more than one way for a solution provider to use 3D Secure? Does Forder recommend bypassing a fraud review on the transaction too? If not, how are you utilizing 3D Secure for your customers? So I think this is really a great example. I know you you maybe had another use case. You want to touch on that before, and then we can talk about everything together. Sure. Yeah, that, that works perfect. Yeah, this is the second use case. So this other merchant started initiating 3DS at the suggestion of their payment processor. 
payment processor has a risk solution that's most focused on protecting. So some merchants have seen like, huh. and, and this isn't true for all payment processors, but some payment processors, their fraud tool is actually the main goal is to protect fraud for the processor, not necessarily their merchant. And that that's very different, but it depends on how the processor is set up, if they're a payback and acquirer. Anyway, I, that's, I now I'm nerding out on the payment side. That doesn't matter. This is what the merchant asked. I was trying to give some background and I realized it doesn't matter. We implemented 3DS as our payment processor and fraud solution suggested. They told us the same thing that you said. It will reduce false positives and fraud chargeback losses. But they didn't tell us that fraud chargebacks can still count towards your monthly chargeback ratio. The monthly chargeback ratio, when you're dividing the number of Visa chargebacks for the number of Visa transactions for the month, should be under 0.9% for Visa and under point or 1% for MasterCard. So we ended up on Visa's dispute monitoring program. Not only did it increase our chargeback ratios, but it introduced a lot of friction to our customers when they were checking out. Now, no one in my company wants to ever consider using 3D Secure. Are all 3DS solutions that are offered by fraud prevention providers the same, or does each use, use them in a different way? So I think both of these questions touch upon something that's extremely important. I think this is where I would break down the, I would say the good from the bad or like reality from expectations or so yes, 3DS offers liability shift, meaning you are not exposed as a merchant to the fraud that might or might not occur when you're routing a transaction through 3DS. What you are exposed to is the fact that fraud is still going to be there. So whether it's your brand that's going to be impacted or your warehouse is going to figure out that there's fraud going on. If there is fraud or that you're going to get, again, you're going to get punished by the processor. Mm -hmm. So I think this is really important that whenever you consider introducing 3DS in your flow is to not just introduce it and blind, blindly as a blanket, like you said, but it has to be made intelligently. And that is part of the reason why I am such a believer in pre auth because without pre auth you can just say, switch on 3DS and then we'll get everything. Mm. So A, by sending everything to 3DS, you're risking the fact that not everyone would get the frictionless challenge. And mm -hmm. if a user, especially in the U.S., gets the friction, meaning the 3DS version 1, which is probably 50% of the credit cards in, in the U.S. are enrolled to that, mm -hmm. there is basically one to two chance that you would just not even complete the transaction. I mean, it was 50% abandonment. Mm -hmm. Either you're unwilling to finish the process or there's some sort of a timeout or the order was sent to someone else or whatever it is, the text message. So that's a real risk. So you don't want to just send everyone hmm. 3DS. You, got, you, you have to be very delicate about it. And I think how I would kind of think about it is out all those that anyone can say to their fraud. Right. I don't want to say that it's obvious or whatever, but a fraud tool decision is very strong, very robust, very much based on facts and statistics. These orders should not get rattled to 3DS. They're mm -hmm. going to be fraud. So you might enjoy connecting the cash near term. You might not be exposed to not be exposed to uh, fraud chargebacks, but you are exposed to all of the other things that you've mentioned. So those chunk of the orders, I would not recommend sending it to 3DS at all. Then there are the good orders, right? The 98% of traffic, they're good, they're great. Mm. You don't need 3DS of them. Take the risk. You know the person, you know the user, it's good. You can contain whatever it is. And then there's the in-between traffic. That in-between traffic 
I would say instead of matter reviewing or instead of just plainly rejecting it because it's too risky, that is exactly the sweet spot of orders that can benefit from 3D. So you can say, well, in certain circumstances, I'd be okay with tolerating fraud as today people, I mean, merchants who don't use 3DS either approve or decline. So what I'm saying, take a chunk out of those orders that you would otherwise decline and take a chunk out of those orders that you approve, you're going to get fraud for or potentially because they are somewhat borderline. And these in-betweeners, sell them to 3DS. Then you're benefiting from, like, you don't have to take a chance. If you're right. kind of, kind of 50-50, not sure, send it to 3DS. Worst case, you got covered. You're not hmm. liable for this. But you're also not just sending everything without right. even thinking about the 3DS. Now, what type of decision engine you're using, who's doing it better. My answer is clear. I don't want to talk about right. it, but, but I think <laughs> this is where it gets really important. And I think combining with the notion that pre-auth is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Pre-auth allows you to do those certain decisions, to make those certain decisions. I would even be more kind of bold here. And it is something that we spoke of last time. Then I'll sell them providers, mm. wink, wink, that can actually tell you or know themselves when frictionless is possible for a certain mm, transaction or rates, not. Yes. So when you think about it, you're knocking on the 3DS door, you're opening it and you're asking, hey, can I go here frictionless? And if the answer is no, you don't have to go there. You can just send it to the regular route, approve the transaction, whatever it is, encourage advocate you are. But if frictionless is possible and you send the transaction there, the user don't experience any challenges. They don't care about it. They don't even know anything that happened, but you're still able to ship liability. So there are so many ways that goes even deeper than just like the plain, plain-ish smart decisioning. Even within that, you can get into different levels of, well, the users are going to get into friction. Well, what type of liability will I have? What type of liability will I not have? Hmm. And that is just like when you talk about this optimization process as a whole, that is just plain opportunity. And again, like to answer both of these questions, I think it is really good for them. It's great that like, the industry is trying to realize. Yeah. 3DS is not, is not a silver bullet. It's not a magic wand. It's something you have to use like with cautious and intelligently and apply that when needed and when you can benefit. If you just send everything to 3DS, you'll end up in a far worse spot because now not only that you have fraud that you don't know on, but now also like banks and credit networks are aggravated by oh, you yeah, by just trying to often, send everything yes. on them. Yes. Well, yes. And they'll often... Make sure that if you're not on the, yeah, because it still counts for the chargeback monitoring program, but it also counts for the fraud monitoring program as well, which also has its own sets of fines and fees and things like that. I think a really good point that you made that I just want to highlight is 3D Secure isn't actually a fraud tool. It's it's actually a payments thing. It, It goes with the authorization. And that's why you're saying when you're looking at a, if you don't use a pre authorization fraud tool, that your only decision is to send. And if you don't use pre-auth fraud tool and you are turning on 3D Secure for your payments, so when you go to the authorization, you're also taking that extra step for 3D Secure through the networks. There's no way for you to be selective on that. You have to send all or nothing. And then you don't know, right? You don't, you don't have any control over who's going to be challenged. You don't have any control over transactions that are fraud that will get proved anyway because oh it's just it's not our money so what you're saying is with using pre-authorization fraud technology then you're able to have a lot more control and intention on when you use 3d secure so you're only you won't use it on the for sure fraud things because we don't want to authorize those anyways right we don't want to send the product out to the fraudster anyway that's just stimulating the crime economy and we don't need to go down that route 
and you don't want to send them to the people that you know are good that have been with you forever because that could their bank could challenge them. Instead, you just use it on the ones. And then, of course, if you use a fraud tool that can tell you, hey, this issuer will probably challenge this person, then you can be more strategic. So I think those are all really good points. So we already talked a, you know, a bit about how fraud, just the landscape, right? And online fraud has changed so much, not only since I started, but since you started in fraud, you know, seven years ago, which in other industries, seven years isn't that many, but here it's a lifetime. And, you know, but it's even changed so much in the last three or four years and not just fraud, but also good customer behavior, as we talked about. So I know that Forer has grown a lot too. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the biggest changes in Forer that you've witnessed or been a part of in the last few years? That's really interesting question, Chris. I think, I mean, I think we talked about so far about how front has changed and evolved with the industry. Now Forer is always trying to you know, trust more and trust more customers and find where we can, A, approve more traffic or even, you know, help our partners get more revenue, which is what we're all about. And I'm combining that with the discussion of post and pre-op, where we have seen a huge change in the past few years or how we've kind of changed our perspective is we're trying to find other ways or alternative ways to help our customers collect that more revenue or, or, or potentially you can say earn more trust with their customers. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're investing a lot in payment optimization flows. And that's exactly what free auth would allow us to do. Once you're sitting before the authorization, you, as I said, you get the, the chance to communicate with the issuing banks. You get the chance to potentially use 3DS if you need it. And by that, we are, I don't want to say we're shifting from fraud to payments because that's not going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. But we're combining payment yeah. consideration with the fraud consideration. And when you think about it, we have that huge data set, consortium data. And we have all of our models that helps us identify users and, and decide what, you know, whether it should be approved or not. We can leverage those same technologies, but apply different set of decisions on them. So we can use those insights on what the user is and what it is that they're doing and make a decision whether we want to communicate with the issuing bank. Hey, that user you're, you're about to see, they're actually good custom because Forder mm. Or right. they're borderline, how about we'll send them to 3DS and there is a high chance they will be able to pass the 3DS. So we're not getting the risk of having to be liable for the charge. We're still not going to think that it's going to overload our chargeback, we just said, for the monitoring programs. Right. So we have the ability to make all of those decisions, but now on a broader set of broader set of implications that might come out of those decisions. So payment related, fraud related. All. This is something that I've seen in the past years. I'm very excited about this, something that our entire mindset has shifted towards, okay, let's now use our ability to make decisions on more aspects of the user journey or the payments flow holistically and not just the fraud component of Well, and I think that that's so important. I've never understood. I mean, I just, and obviously it's because I started in payments first before going to fraud, but I couldn't imagine doing this job without knowing payments as well as I do. And most of the questions that I get from merchants that they, you know, don't know anyone else to ask. I would say maybe not most, but a lot of them are payments related, right? How the process and all those things. And I think that one of the common misconceptions of people who aren't in fraud is kind of a common misconception across other things too, but uh, we see it in other ways, but is really around the authorization, right? Like, oh, the bank is going to give us a yes or a no, no matter what. And that's not the case. That can be optimized, just like 
your own, you know, internal approval rates for suspected fraud can be optimized, just like your chargebacks can be optimized. And using all of that data and that knowledge and saying, okay, we know that this bank is going to authorize more transactions if it has this extra information. Or we know that this bank over here, you know, we have a relationship with them, we can give them a heads up. That's something that, you know, I haven't seen any other providers do. And I think that that's really interesting. The other thing I wanted to say too is on your consortium data, you know, I was just having a conversation with a merchant two days ago, you know, talking about their own the provider that they're using now and how the majority of the decisions are based on the consortium. And that was why they went with that provider. But what they're noticing is it's only data based consortium. And like we talked about before, right, if there's one letter off on the on the address, if the email is a little bit different, it's they're not going to have enough data. What I've seen with Border, and this is a really big credit to you and your team and the R&D team and everyone else, is you're actually looking at it on behavior down to, you know, it may not be carice123 at, you know, gmail.com. That is not my email. But if you start seeing a pattern where, you know, every, you know, it's a first name and then it's, you know, this many numbers or whatever that is, and kind of also being as vague as possible with, while also being specific, you consider that a behavior and you're looking at that and that is extra identifier. You're not just saying, is this an apple? Yes, this is an apple. It's like, oh, this is a different kind of apple, but it's still an apple, right? That it's not a red apple. such a great, great insight. And I think this is also an opportunity to publicly clear the air about how we are using or not using our sorting data. There is a mm-hmm. common misconception. It was saying, okay, so Forder has the biggest network. And you know, we do based on what we're, we're seeing in the industry, but, and we know probably the most people and the most personas out there. And we have run in kind of an estimation recently that we probably have encountered roughly 1.5 billion unique identities globally. And, you know, add, combine that with how many people in the world even have access to an online connection and how many countries that are close to the rest of the world in terms of internet, like China or India, that are not super combined. Mm. Like, Right. E-commerce. 1.5 billion is a lot of a lot of online users out of the global population. But with that, when we're seeing a user, we're not asking like have one of the questions have we seen them before? But if we've seen them specifically or not, it's not as important as mm. what you just said, right? Who they look most like? To, like what can I derive of their behavior? based on what I've seen on the network. So that network is essentially a gigantic training set for our mm. data models to work on. So the fact we've seen so many activity means that we can very easily determine whether a new activity we're seeing is good or bad. Whether we've seen that person or not is part of it. And yeah, mm-hmm. we can say, like yeah. I said, yeah, we can do that data match. It is important. Wait. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And it's whether also, it's with that yeah. one particular company or other companies, right? You've seen those. That's apps, That makes it easy. Exactly. But exactly. the harder stuff is in the margins. And absolutely. when, you know, we have consumers using VPNs and we have fraudsters using VPNs, it's important to know, okay, we can't just say no to all VPNs anymore. We can't just say no to all, you know, proxy person or whatever you want to call them, right? Like, you know, proxies, we have to say, well, what? What is the bigger picture? We have to zoom out a little bit and say, okay, but what, because we all know in fraud, it's not about the exact things of the combination, right? It's not just one factor. Um, What happens if you're seeing the user when they're using their card and then someone else is using their credentials and they're now a victim of fraud? How can you differentiate hmm. that? And you can imagine that like with the breadth of our network, we've seen a lot of instances. Yes. How can you keep the actual persona clean 
yes. while identifying the attacker or the attack method. That is what we're investing a lot in. And yes, this is the long tail of incidents, as you mentioned, it's in the margin, but this is exactly where the gold is. And you know, yes. if you want to understand how we're doing things different or, or better, that, that that is where you should be. A hundred and ten percent. Yeah. And I think, you know, you brought up one other thing that's important is, you know, making sure that you're not marking a victim and all their information as fraud because then they try to go buy something from, you know, the same company again or, you know, another company in that network. And oh man, I've seen that more times than I can count. We're like, why is my name and my email address, you know, it was used by someone else. Why can't I make a purchase? And then they have to you know, there's so many questions, right? Like, wait, the fraud happened at, you know, Merchant B. I'm going to Merchant, you know, M. Like why, you know, well, we use the same, you know, it becomes a thing. So then also there was a question from a user that I know to you guys probably doesn't, you know, I, I know that you don't think it's as important because, well, you'll answer why. But I know that several merchants are having this challenge. So, you know, as more and more commerce happens, the whole goal of e-commerce obviously is always to to try to open as many doors as possible and make things as easy as possible, as quick as possible. Two of those things are guest checkout and social login, right? So I log into my, you know, I log into a, a merchant or whatever through my, you know, Facebook or my Twitter or whatever else. But the challenge with fraud is that oftentimes there are, you know, some providers that that really struggle with those because they don't have all the, the same information. So the question from this merchant, and it came during our group demo, you know, the the anonymous demo that we did last month that you were a part of was, you know, what are some of the strategies that Forer takes to control fraud in guest checkout and social login for e-tailers? Well, I, I, I fear that I'll give somewhat of an underwhelming response here. I think what is important to understand with Porter is that every single data point that's connected to a transaction is being taken account for their model. So guest checkouts might be more or less fraudulent than, than like in account checkout for a specific mm -hmm. merchant. They might not. That is all taken into account. So we are essentially given... I want to say it's like kind of a data science term terminology. There are certain weights that are assigned each data point within a certain context. So let's say we're, we're let give an example, maybe something that can be kind of easy to follow. So there is a digital transaction of a digital good. Someone is buying a gift card and the AVS, meaning the address verification system shows a perfect match to the billing address. Uh, mm -hmm. For in many, many cases, that would have been like a really strong connection. Okay. So the person who has the card is, you know, definitely knows the address that's connected to the card. I would say, yes, it is a great identifier if any physical item would have been sent to that address. But yes. on a digital good capacity, hmm. that information alone does not add anything to my risk assessment because no. if the fraudster I'm dealing with is a good fraudster, of course, they'll put in the right billing address to make sure that right. they have that ABS. So it's kind of the same thing. Is a guest checkout more fraudulent or less fraudulent than others? It depends on the context, depends right. on, on the specific site. Has that site, does that site even has, like, do they even offer an account system? Right. Does the account system some, somehow incentivize users to join? Are there any loyalty, um, loyalty right. points or other discounts, financial incentives? Can you save details on the account that would save you trouble on guest mm -hmm. checkout? So there's a plethora of, of data points that are missing in that question, right? Yes. How do we deal yes. with 
how do we deal with guest checkouts or social sign-on? The same way we deal with every other data point we have. We're asking, does that matter for the context of that specific, you know, risk assessment of a transaction? Mm -hmm. And if it is, we assign the right way to it. I think the one thing we want to really stay away from and avoid is to, I would say, to whitelist or blacklist specific data items out of our assessment, because we believe that would only limit ourselves in terms of what we can do. And fraudsters, by and large, can walk around it. So if now we're going to just broadly not approve any guest checkouts, I never recommend that, but let's assume we do that, then a fraudster will just open an account. And if opening an account is free, okay, so we've added another step of frustration, but if the reward is worth it, they'll do it. So I am not saying- And the same goes through opposite, right? Like I've seen that before where, you know, business decision has been made our fraud provider doesn't really, doesn't have enough information for guest checkout. So we're just going to approve all of them. Well, they know that too, right? So they'll figure so it we're, out, we're right? Trying to, we're trying to walk away from kind of being deterministic about a specific data point. Sure. I'll be the first to say there are them things that are way more fraud indicator than others. If, if someone, you know, like I think we spoke about it either there and last time when you're pasting your credit card number on the mm. checkout page, usually it shows malicious intent. But not no. always. What if it's no, no. like a corporate something, someone's using corporate cards to purchase gifts for yeah. employees. So you're going to see high velocity. Someone's pasting the details. It doesn't mean anything right. as of its own. Always like the context of which things are happening. And, you know, you can think about it. Sometimes I meet with friends occasionally. You'd be surprised I have some. And they might say, hey, though, you ugly son of a gun. How are you? I'm not going to take offense. It's a friend of mine. The context is really important. If a (laughs) random person in the street would call out something like that, that would be really aggravating. Right. Same same as fraud. Like there's a certain context for for things that are happening. And you got to always remember that when you're assessing fraud, I will also recommend in real life to do that. But I am in no position to recommend anyone anything about their personal life. But that's, you know, part of how we see things around. Well, I see a theme there because, you know, you also don't believe in negative lists, right? Just like you said, or I also know that, you know, your, your models are agnostic depending on, you know, the payment method being used. They're also agnostic depending on the, you know, contractual billing, you know, whether there's liability or no liability, your models don't know how, you know, the company is, how the, how the contract is set up. Right. So our models are trying to make the best decision for a specific transaction again with the context. And of mm-hmm. course, that I will, you know, be very transparent of the way we build, the way we charge, the way we're making our profits. That's besides the point, but that is based on the accuracy of our models. But yes. it does not work right. the other way. So our models are not gaming the system or, mm-hmm. you know, by any way we will not increase the decline rate to make, you know, more money or something like that. We'll just make right. sure that the, the, the way we're commercially agreeing with our partners is one that is sustainable long term. And I think the mutual incentive here kind of that's I think that's what I would say is the the great thing about it. We're yeah. it's very transparent to both sides, you know, the relationship. How much is well, being approved, how much is being, you know, being coming back as charged back, what what we are charging, that you know, that's that's just based on transparent kind of reporting alone can be, yeah. yeah, difficult in some situations. But with, you know, you guys I, I know that that's not the case. You know, and, and my mind has been changed about Forder over the last year because as you know, more and more merchants that I know and, and respect greatly have have moved to you and just said, oh my goodness, it's such night and day. 
So that makes a big difference. And that's a big reason why you wanted to have you on the podcast again, as well as, you know, Forder as a sponsor this quarter. Uh, so last question, you know, and this is probably the biggest one, but also it's been thread throughout this conversation. But this also comes from a listener. And I think it's really, you know, brass tacks, as they say in the US, right? Like it all comes down to brass tacks. Every fraud provider in the space basically sounds the same. I've been critical of, you know, of companies, you guys included, right? Like, hey, like, but I get it, right? It's really, you only have certain amount of times and everything else. And in a way, everybody is claiming to do the same thing, but not everyone is is actually doing it. But I've heard from a few, oh, so this is actually from a listener. So, but I've heard from a few of my peers or merchants that I trust recently that they switched to Forder this year and their experience has been a lot better than it was with their other provider. How is Forder's approach to fraud and passing good orders, you know, that can often be risky. So not just your approach to fraud, but your approach to, you know, threading that needle, balancing between good and bad, different from the tool that we might use. That is a question that, as you can imagine, it's not the first time I'm hearing. And I think it's right. very, very easy to get confused. And you know, I also acknowledge the fact that sometimes a lot of competitors of ours and potentially us kind of intending to want to sound the same, but want to say what everyone else is saying to make sure that, you know, that no one can promise something that, you know, someone else can do or something. So I acknowledge right. that. And stay I think, yeah, yeah, that, that is, that's absolutely a reason. I think the way I usually approach it and the way I think that is important to know. So we've talked about the fact that our network is the largest and that we believe that we have higher accuracy and that we even specifically competed or head to head in all sorts of different capacities with what I think almost every single one of our of our competitors and have always performed better. So, I mean, if you were to ask me the first identifier, might sound kind of tacky, but we are better and that can, we have proof points for that and many of mm -hmm. those. And I think the reason is, is that from the get-go, really early days of Forder, and I'll hand it to our co-founders, Michael, Leon, and Alon, that was their vision. Let's make a machine that makes full 100% of the time automated decisions for you know, fraud decisions. Which means that we are the, and I think still to this day, we're the only company that can actually guarantee that 100% of the decisions are going to be made 100% in real time. And we are, we have that in our agreements. And this is something that I think is very, very strong. So we're always faster and we're not going to exclude anything out of it. We're not going to say, well, 1% we're going to want to review or 2% we think this is kind of obviously fraud. So we're going to have to stop it or some stuff like that. We are committing to provide full time, like real time, 1% of the time. And I think this is, this is a big move. And I also think that all of the approaches we're kind of talking about, you know, now and also in previous time we've met and chatted for, for an episode is, is the fact that we are trying to, to link the identities, use that probabilistic component, component and, and make that intelligent decision based on that. This is something that, again, we have started doing from the, this is how our solution has been set up. Mm -hmm. A lot of other players in the field, and I have tremendous amount of respect to all of them. And honestly, this is, you know, that's part of part of the job. That's that's fine. And um, there is healthy competition is always good. But every single one of them, and I'm not even talking about the rules-based one, because that's kind of a different, different game. But even the ones that are new gen have started as a kind of enhancement tool for manual reviewers. So mm -hmm. either in a capacity of what you would say, trash to treasure, right? Send me the 5% worse transactions you have, and I'll try to flip some. Or how about you'll send them your transaction and I'll make automated decision for 80% of them and then apply my own manual review on 20%, stuff like that. So that A means that from the setup that 
the system is built differently. Mm -hmm. But also, let's think about the size of the network and what that network contains. While we are seeing 100% of the traffic of 100% of our merchants, our consortium data is very much balanced, I would say. Like the one uh, problem, and I think we touched upon it last time, the one problem with applying machine learning on fraud is that fraud occurs maximum 1% of the time. It's not like the classic right, machine learning, 50% pictures of dogs, 50% pictures of cats, and then the model uh, knows how to, right? Machine learning models would always be extremely biased towards good. Transactions, because 99% of the time, a transaction is going to be good. Right. Now, and this is something that when you want to identify what fraud looks like and what good looks like, you need to see the full data. If you're only getting the five worst, 5% 5 worst traffic of, a, of your partner, mm. then your entire data is kind of structured differently. So that is huh. something that, that is very different. And I think that you know, talks about how we're set up and performance and accuracy. I think this is kind of one side of it, but honestly... I think this is an opportunity for a lot of people to say, well, if you're just saying you're better, it's not, it's not a lot. But I think the one thing that I do want to call out that is very important and how we separate ourselves is we always strive to connect our partners. And I'm kind of referring to from saying our buyers, but it is kind of part of it. Right? We are servicing a highly educated, motivated crowd. We're working with yeah. fraud managers, scientists, people who have seen data, seen the data out there, traffic. Many, many, many years we're working with fraud managers who are sometimes 37 years in, in the position in the company. Mm -hmm. world. Even before e-commerce, they were handling fraud yeah. and security for a lot of their parts. So that's something important. I would never even dream of coming up to a person like that and, hey, whatever you've been doing for the past 30 years, hand it over to me. I got you so long, Sonny Boy, right? It's not, it's right. not what we're here to do. So we want to open that conversation. We want to take that somewhat consultative approach, use them. We have so many great models, the linking, the ATO, the fraud, everything we talked about. We would never know a business better than the fraud manager who sits in that position from their perspective. And it doesn't matter if they're 30 years in, in, in the role or even three months in the role. It's not right. what we do. We are working with them. We're thinking of us as an extension of their team. Even when we're first introducing ourselves to a merchant, we will do our best to have them connected with someone from our analytics team or our solution consultant team as soon as possible, right? So sometimes it's me, sometimes it's other people on my team. Sometimes, you know, it can be, again, a solution consultant. Want to make sure that the care and attention that our partners are getting is something that goes beyond just, you'll send us transaction, we'll send you a decision. And one example I can think of this coming October, we're going to have our second impact conference here in New York City. I'll be there if anyone wants to come and say hi. And this is such a great opportunity for our entire community to meet. So we're going to have you know, long time partners there. We're going to have a lot of internal experts to walk through the solutions we have set up and the way we keep thinking of how kind of to change up and improve and, and get better at what we do. We're going to have some interested crowds, yeah. potential partners. So they all these people are going to get together. Ford, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. We don't have to be personal person. We want to generate that open community. We want to have those discussions. We want people to feel like they're part of, we say we want people to part. That's, that's how I think. Like when we're partnering with a merchant, they are part of the Forder network, the Forder community for every intent and purpose. We're not just leveraging the consortium data. We're nice. leveraging their insights. We're leveraging their feedback. You know, another great example, and you talked about the anonymized demo we've done a couple mm -hmm. of weeks ago. Our dashboard essentially is being used by, I would say, hundreds of different fraud managers on a day-to-day -day basis. 
meaning it's been constantly played by mm. experts in the field that are keep asking us for different features or different duties or other things to do. And we're listening to all of that and we're doing that. Yeah. So if one of our partners, don't want to call out a specific name, is asking for a certain usability or a certain added feature, we would add that and would release that to all of our users. So mm -hmm. the other day, very much like our consortium data, even the actual dashboard that the people are working with is kind of like crowdsourced and crowd intelligence source in right, a way. It's a you want to, exactly. But again, from everyone. So you're, yes. when you're a Forder partner, you're enjoying all of the insights from all of Forder board. Mm -hmm. We also have kind of a customer advisory board where we're actually connecting customers together and, and having them share insight and, and use those insights to provide a better solution that can fit everyone. And I think the one on the last impact conference, there was very, very specific moment that I thought was really great in that regard. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to even name the industry because it will be too much of a tell. But two major competitors in the field of a certain industry, talk about mm -hmm. major competitors, like we've all heard the names, we've all known yep. of the like long time you know, kind of, in uh, every other rivalry, every company, other department, you know? oh, yeah. two mm -hmm. fraud managers were sitting and having lunch together, talking about how they're fighting fraud together and how they mm -hmm. can benefit from the fact they both use Ford. So to me, that is a major differentiator, uh, having that community, having that kind of experts, talking to experts, the support we're giving, the, some call it here, the white glove service or whatever it is. And I think this is important. This is important because Besides generating great revenue and, and, you know, making those great fraud decisions and optimizing payments, at the end of the day, we are offering a service and a tool for fraud managers or payment managers to use. And we want to make sure that we're doing right by them, first mm. and foremost. And, and, and I, plainly, this is our, our biggest differentiator. Well, and as someone who knows a lot of the people, those fraud leaders that you're talking about, they have very high expectations because they know their stuff. In fact, that's actually what made me start to go, huh, maybe I need to look at Ford or maybe they've changed over the last few years. Maybe they aren't the same as other companies that I thought because merchants that I know that are the top of their game, not just that the company is big, but the leaders are top of their game and they have very high expectations and they, there are high expectations put on them by their leadership, right? Like For sure. they'd never be, their leadership would never be okay with that. And in one way, it's because every basis point is like $50 million for them, right? So like, sometimes it's, it's even more. Sometimes, sometimes a lot more. And you know, I can, Absolutely. I can share with you something that's also kind of, and I think we've, we've seen it all across the industry in the past few years. Up until, I want to say maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, fraud was like a compliance issue, right? Yes. Oh, you're, you're the people who are stopping revenue. Yep. But oh, I yeah. think that we yeah, now have an opportunity. Yes. And we have... That opportunity and kind of the styles are aligned in a way, and especially, you know, after COVID where people were trying to cut costs and a lot of places mm. they actually figured that fraud is a worthy investment. I think yeah. now we know, and I think now even internally in organizations, the fraud manager is almost like the best body of the CFO, right? Because yeah. this is what we're seeing. This is how you now have kind of your finger on, on the dam, right? And you, get, and you get to decide how much is going to go through and how mm. much is not. And if you can optimize that without losses or every fraud manager out there, you, you get to be the hero of, of, of the team. And I'm not even joking. And that is really, really, really important and a really kind of paradigm shift from mm. being, like I said, sales prevention to actually revenue generator, mm -hmm. adding payments on top of that. That is extremely important part of each company. And we treat it with the utmost seriousness when we're partnering with, with anyone. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. 
I really appreciate that. And I think anyone that knows that listens to fraudology is not used to, you know, maybe asking these flat out questions, but they're ones that the industry has. And the more I hear from listeners as well as, you know, merchants I have relationships with on both sides of the fence, I think accuracy by far is so important. And the cost of not being accurate is too high, whether that is in lost chargebacks, lost customers, lost trust, or that's in, you know, just all of those pieces, right? Gained customers, get all those. It's just, it's too high now. And it's no longer like, you know, I mean, a couple of years ago, there wasn't that much of a big difference between, you know, one company to the next. They all kind of did the same thing. Now, not so much. So that's why I wanted to ask you those questions. And I, you know, you are not in a sales position, but you obviously, you know your stuff when it comes to fraud and you could choose to work pretty much anywhere and you choose to stay at Forder. So that's why I wanted to ask you those questions. I really appreciate that. And I'm happy to take any questions. And yes, I'm not in a sales position. I definitely drank a lot of the Forder Kool-Aid during the years. So I'm a, I'm a true <laughs> believer. Addicts for sugar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> true believer oh, for that. Yes, my, you know, specifically sugar is, is something I, I struggle with. And, and maybe I can take that opportunity if you don't mind. Like any sure. one cool. of the listeners, I know sometimes it can be off-putting to kind of just send the questions to Forder and then having been connected with someone who's, who's like an account manager. And we all know like the incentive for them to sell, sell, sell. Well, um, the problem I with fraud people, yeah. right, is we know intentions and intentions exactly. are important to us. Exactly. And so sometimes you're so right. I'd like to is... like, I want huh. to extend this offer to anyone out there who's curious to learn about Forder, want to have an unsolicited conversation. I am more than happy to entertain that. I promise not to hard sell anything. I want to help educate people and, and walk through what we can or what we can do. And again, if anyone out there is interested, you know, my, my LinkedIn profile is, is very, very accepting. And it's also Doyle at Forder. If someone wants to send an email, I'm one of those old timers who have a very simple email with my <laughs> name at Forder. You're probably the only Doyle as well. So that helps. Oh, that is, that is very, very true. I don't want to tell you what my Gmail address is, but it's, <laughs> it's very similar. So yeah, so again, I don't want to push anyone, but if, if someone wants to have that conversation, I'm open to it. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons you and I get along so well is we have very similar passions and, you know, while we love fraud and all those pieces, we also just want to help people. Right. And we want to help. Sometimes it's hard to know who to trust. And so I, that's, yeah, that was unplanned. Sometimes I say, careful what you ask for. Some people, oh my gosh, I used to get like one or two messages a week and, <laughs> and now it's like 20. I'm like, welcome to my life. I get like 20 or 30 a day, but it's amazing. I'm not complaining. Bill also has always put a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes today, as well as a link to the impact conference. I'm not sure if I'm going to be there yet. I hope I can be. I would I love to have you there. To yeah. Yeah. Well, I haven't talked to the team yet, but I'd love to be able to share some of the benchmarking survey stuff or just, you know, be able to be there. So I need to check my calendar and my, tra my travel budget for Chargelytics. But I, yeah, so I, you know, but I don't know if I'll be there yet, but I know you will be. And I know some amazing merchants, some who have been guests before, like Jenna at, at Snipes. And there's a few others as well that will be there, as well as a lot of them that, that, work for companies that are so big that they can't speak publicly, but they will actually probably speak on stage at Porter. So I'll put a link to the impact conference in the show notes. And fun fact, I learned that if you go to the agenda, even though there isn't to the agenda page now, even though there isn't an agenda just quite yet for this October, 
I know you guys are working on that. You can actually see the recordings of the sessions from last year, the full series. And there are some very incredible people speaking and some really good topics. I was having a hard time not, I, I wanted to watch all of them. I was like, oh shoot, I don't have time, but hopefully I can soon. So it always goes longer than we plan, but I just appreciate your time and your passion. And and hopefully next time we have you on the podcast, well, I know this will be the case. You'll be a dad. So. I sure hope so. I mean, yeah, everything should go as planned. Yes. And absolutely. It's very exciting. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just, yeah, I was, well, I was more thinking like, wait, am I going to have you on the podcast before then? But I'm like, no, it's like in just a few weeks. So that was the right hesitation. We can have a spin and have like a parenting podcast if you want to do like one Uh, one of those. Actually, (laughs) you can give me advice. Yes. Well, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out, but she's 19 and still alive. So that's longer than any plant or animal I've kept alive. There you go. At least there's that. Yeah. Well, I do think, you know, there's, there's something to be said about fraud, being in fraud and parenting that some of us have had some pretty fun conversations about that. That can come later, but for now, the basics. So thanks again so much. I hope that I get to see you in October at the Impact Conference. And I will see you soon. And yep, I will I'll talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much for being here. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.